The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This episode has two segments. The first contains a pair of voice actor interviews from Anime Milwaukee 2023. Listen in as Susie Young and Leah Clark share their experiences working on Pokemon. If you'd like to know more about what I did at the convention, look for a link in the episode description. The second segment is a discussion of the music of Pokemon Ranger Shadows of Almia. And from BK Podcast drops by to help me cover this middle entry in the sub-series. Of course, this title is also known for its mechanical changes, and you hear us talk about those in the game discussion after the outro. Thanks. Hey folks, as with last year's convention, some of the people here were masked. First up is Susie Young who played Jupiter in Pokemon Evolutions. Hi, my name is Steven. I'm from an organization called Pokerest. Susie, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into voice acting? Oh, it's it's a very long story. (laughs) But to sum it up, I got an audition um, from a friend who was visiting um, because they were working with a studio at the time, and they were like, oh, I remember you really like... Like, like uh, watching anime and playing video games and stuff like that. So would you be interested to audition? So I did. Booked the lead part, and that was Kimono Friends, which was my very first anime project. Um, and at the time, I was working a full-time job. I was flying back and forth to record that. But uh, a little bit down the line, I think uh, my company merged, and they started letting go of a bunch of departments. Um, so I was cutting a crossroads, like, should I just pursue voice acting or do another 9-to-5 job? So I chose the voice acting route. <laughs> so fast forward to today, um, I have moved to LA, and I'm currently pursuing that full-time. <laughs> and once you made that move, what were some of your roles that you got then? So the very first audition that I received and that I booked was actually Final Fantasy VII Remake for Yuffie. I actually got that audition the day after I arrived in L.A. um, from a long road trip. Uh, And thereafter, I just kept doing it. (laughs) And the folks at home might remember that you had a role as Jupiter in Pokemon Evolutions, one of the Team Galactic members. How did that come about? Uh, I think it came as an audition. So what's interesting is I knew Pokemon as you know, a show that has already been done in Japanese, but in Pokemon Evolutions, it's interesting because it's a prelay project, meaning, like, it's our English voices that get recorded first, and then the Japanese voices get recorded afterwards. So what it means is the animation is done to our performance. So when I was doing it, I didn't have the traditional video up where I had to match the lip flaps, so um, I just had a script with no visuals, and um, I played the character in the episode, and it was really cool. They animated to my performance, and then I think the Japanese performance came after. Yeah. 
Interesting tidbit. Uh, what was yeah. your sort of approach to the character? Well, she she's kind of a bad <laughs> So uh, I try to sort of channel that really smug energy, like looking down at uh, her opponent, um, which she's a bad guy. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. What have you worked on more recently? The most recent one that has just ended is... Chainsaw Man. <laughs> Time flies and season one is over and I hope for season two soon. And where can folks find you online? You can find me mostly on Twitter and Instagram. My Twitter is just Susie Young, my name. And Instagram is Susie.Young. And uh, yeah, I do have a Twitch channel at YesSusie, Y-E-S-U-Z-I-E. But I don't stream as often as I want to, but I'm hoping to do that more soon. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, we have Leah Clark, who had some roles in Generation 5. All right, Leah. My name is Steven. I'm from PokePress. Just a few questions here. First of all, how'd you get into voice acting? Uh, I got into voice acting by being an actor, and that's always been my primary passion. I've done it in many different ways since I was five years old. And uh, one day there was just an audition for uh, some anime, I can't remember, I think it was like Spiral or something a long time ago. And I was excited because it was a new way to um, to act. And I went and auditioned and uh, yeah, it turned out well. And ever since then I was getting cast in like just basically bit roles for about two years, honestly, and then um, there was a show called Negima. It had like 27 lead female characters, and so that was kind of like my breakout. Is I actually got one of those 27. <laughs> and uh, what were some of your other early roles? Earlier roles? Um, I was Aerie in School Rumble, uh, which was really fun, and... Let's see, Blair and Soul Eater, I think is earlier, which is weird because I think it's had kind of like a resurgence, so people still remember it, but it's strange to think that it was like almost 10 years ago. Um, and I played this character called Harley in Case Closed, so that's <laughs> that's super early. Yeah. All right, well, in terms of Pokemon roles, you did have a couple. You had a character of the day role in the Black and White era, and you were Carlita in the Victini movies now. We did discuss this a little bit earlier. It seems like it was a bit of a blur to you. How did that all play out? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was super blurry. Um, I, you know, met someone, one of the directors at a convention. We hit it off, and he was like, "Oh, you should audition for Pokemon." So we did, and you know, flew out there. It was like a one-day deal, and um, it was kind of fun because a friend of mine, Michael Tatum, was playing like the other male trainer in that same movie or one of the movies. So that was cool. I think I had like maybe one interaction with them. But um, yeah, we just recorded it. It was a totally different studio. So they did things completely different than, you know, what Funimation would have done. And it was it was a great experience to just see how other places work. And to be part of Pokemon in general is awesome. Like sometimes, since it was so long ago, I forget like, oh yeah, I'm in that kind of. <laughs> What are some of your more recent roles? Um, well, the most recent one honest, is uh, is actually, um, her name is Usaragi, and she's in Love is War. 
uh, and she's really cool. She's got glasses, and she is super awkward and says uh, really dark things in a very straight, like, flat tone. So that's fun. Um, but we're also in season six of My Hero Academia, so I play Himiko Toka in that one. And that has been a blast so far, playing a character so crazy and unpredictable. <laughs> and where can folks find you online? Do you have a website, social media? I have both of those things, um, and they're all under the same name, so it's easy to remember. It's leahclarkva.com, and you can find out all my information. I also have a store connected there, so if you wanted to buy autographs or whatever, those are there. Um, all my social media is leahclarkva, so Twitter, Instagram. Instagram is where I'm most active, so if you want to say hi, I would re definitely recommend that one. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for your time, Leah. Thank you. With a driving beat and dramatic vocals, Holding Out for a Hero makes a great trailer song. In the case of Detective Pikachu, it's used to showcase the more action-packed elements of the film. The shots from the roundhouse, the lab, and the climax of the movie, the music helps sell that this isn't simply a low-key crime story. There are lyrical parallels as well. The hook of the song responds to Tim's statement that he doesn't need a Pokemon, and the trailer makes a fairly obvious use of Like a Fire in My Blood. To be honest though, they could have gone even further, as Someone Somewhere Watching Me is definitely true for our heroes, and the references to Thunder and Lightning are just begging to be used. Then again, there's only so much you can fit in a trailer. In any case, what are your thoughts on this pairing? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from Big Gay Podcast, and in our continuing series of Pokemon side game music discussions, we've reached Pokemon Ranger Shadows of Almia for the DS. So this is the middle of the three Pokemon Ranger games. Now, the first one was a Gen 3, very late Gen 3 side game. This is actually a full-on Gen 4 side game. And although this installment is mostly known for changing a fair number of mechanical things from the first game, it does have its own soundtrack for the most part, and we're going to be talking about that. First, we'd like to do a little bit of background info. This game was released in 2008. If you were in Japan, it came out in March of that year. If you were in North America, Europe, or Australia, it actually came out in November, different weeks. But all three of those regions got the game sometime in November of 2008. And just a little reminder, this game is available on the Wii U Virtual Console, although it's getting progressively more difficult to put credit on there and buy things. In fact, by the time this makes it to the podcast feed, there's a very good chance that it'll be nearly, if not totally, impossible to do that, unfortunately. Uh, but you can always try to pick up a used copy as well. Let's see, as far as the original experience with this game... I kind of initially had no interest until I found out that they had really changed the capture mechanics to be a lot less, I guess you could say, repetitive and um, difficult as they were, or as a lot of folks, including myself, found them to be in the first Ranger game. Once I found that out, I was much more interested and ended up picking this up. Now, Anne, if I recall correctly, you did play at least some of the first game, but that didn't carry you over and get you interested in the second one. Uh, what exactly happened there back in the day? Yeah, like, I'm trying to remember back. This is not a 
game that made a huge impression on me, but like I believe I've played bits and pieces of it, but maybe found the gameplay difficult and just never really, you know, got into the that game. And so when the second one came out, it just like wasn't even on my radar until now when I have played a little bit of it. You did end up picking up a copy for this uh, retrospective that we're doing right now, and we certainly appreciate that, especially given the typical resale value of used Pokemon games. <laughs> but uh, as far as me, like I said, I did pick this up. I played all the way through it. I also played all the way through it on the Wii U Virtual Console. So to me, this is almost kind of like the first game in the Pokemon Ranger series, sort of setting the first one aside as sort of a well, that was a nice try. Uh, we'll talk more about sort of the gameplay changes in our actual gameplay discussion at the very end, but this one made much more of an impression on me, much more positive impression, I would say, overall. But uh, as far as the music, it probably won't surprise you too much that that the two people who worked on the first game also worked on this one. But there is actually a new name there. Uh, just to review, let's go over the f- people who are returning here. There is... Takuto Kitsuda, who is uh, kind of best known for the scrapped N64 version of Mother 3. Let's see, some e-cards. He apparently did some work on Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver, and the game Detective Pikachu, which we will get to at some point. And then there's Kintasato, Way of the Samurai 3, apparently, is one of his credits. And any updates or uh, insights on those two uh, folks? Nothing on those two, no. Um, I, I did look up um, Shinobu Amayake, and I have like a little bit on her. I don't know if it's much different than what you've been able to find on her, though. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this this new person, uh, Shinobu Amayake. Hopefully, I got that about right. But uh, she is uh, well. She did some game music development back in the '90s. She worked on, I guess, the NES version of Wario's Woods, sort of the infamous last official NES game, as well as Stunt Race FX for the Super Nintendo. And as the name of that kind of implies, it's one of those Super FX games. You know, the first there was Star Fox. This is sort of the second main uh, Super FX game that came out. It was a racing game that that was uh, produced there, and she did the music for it. And then eventually she kind of seems to have formed her own music company. Uh, Anne, did you have any details on that? Yeah, so she... Um runs AMK Music. She started that in 2006 after leaving Yamaha. Um, And she still is, I guess, the CEO. She still presides over the company now. She's also involved in arranging, like, Nintendo songs for the piano. So a lot of, like, Nintendo song books for Mario, Zelda, and Pokemon and the like are her work, her arrangement work. So that's an interesting tip. And I also like found some notes in some bios of her that she's actually living in New York. I don't know if that's still true or if that was only true for a small time in her life, but that's interesting as well. Yeah. Given the circumstances of the last few years, I wouldn't be surprised if there was another move in there. So, um, mm. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. It, it, it's unfortunately not clear exactly how she got pulled into this particular project, if they just needed some extra music done or wanted an extra set of ears on it or something like that. And she that's how she got her credit and stuff like that, or she's, or if she composed specific songs for it or, or what like that. But it is a very interesting little story. 
Yeah, given that she seems to have a lot of talent for arranging, that could be the uh, capacity for which she was called for. But as you say, it's hard, hard to tell. All right. Well, as far as the overall style for the music in this game, it's pretty similar to the first Ranger game, very much uh, sort of a lot of march type music with brass, woodwind, stuff like that. There is, There are a number of songs that sort of uh, go in different directions, a few of which I think Anne and I have picked for this one. And, and in fact, some of these songs in the original Ranger game are more or less brought over as is, but and did you get a similar overall impression? Yeah, I'd say I did. Um, one, of, one of the notes I have on just overall impression is that this this soundtrack loves its arpeggios. Uh, but yeah, just in general, I think the overall, I think we're kind of on the same page with our observations. Just it's, it's very big. It's very broad. It's very dramatic. Um, similar but different. Yeah, you can definitely tell the the games are related musically. Mm. Uh, not entirely surprising since they're on the same hardware and the same subseries and whatnot. All right, well, we've done what we pretty much always do here. We've each picked three songs. Let's see. I picked the Vienne Forest theme, the Underwater theme, and the Empoleon Ride theme. These are all, of course, unofficial titles since there's not really an official soundtrack or anything like that, but... In any event, Anne, what did you pick for this one? I picked the Chicole Village, the School at Night, and the Incredible Machine. Yeah, we you got a pretty wide swath here, I'd say. Now, as usual, we're going to try and go roughly in the order you would experience these songs in gameplay. And as a result, the first one is one of Anne's picks, School at Night. So, Anne, what sort of caught your attention here? Um, well, it kind of reminded me of the opening to Thriller, honestly, just the kind of uh, undulating tone and the synths. It's just a great use of sound, um, like with, it's got, I think they're Kodo drums, and then there's like little piano flourishes, the synthesizer, and like a, a shaker. It's just very useful at kind of just creeping you out and unsettling and just building to something that never quite gets resolved. And like I said, it just, there were moments where I literally thought the da da na 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 or something would start coming in from Ghostbusters or Thriller or something. Like, so I feel like it did its job very well for a situation where you're in a school at night, you know, that just general sense of not, this is, we're not supposed to be here and the drama that plays out in this game sometimes, all centered around a school. <laughs> yeah, this uh, in the early part of the game, you're at a ranger school, which, you know, given this is a second game in, in the sub-series, it's kind of interesting that they have a, a whole school set up there. But one of the things that happened, I believe this, this song comes up when you're exploring kind of the basement and stuff like that, and you're running into like some ghastly or something like that. So music definitely sort of fits that scene. Um, I put down the spooky piano and creaking boards, I think is the sound they were going for with some of that. I think you actually do have to go down to the basement for a little bit there. Yeah, it's just it's just a unique little track that is very specific to its location. <laughs> so after you've completed the school segment, you go into sort of the main portion of the game. And one of the first tunes you hear there is the Vienne Forest theme, which is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's used throughout the game. But I picked this. 
And, uh, you know, it plays not only in the VN forest, but pretty much in anything that's not a, a city um, or a dungeon of some sort. And uh, what I really liked about it, it does have that March uh, brass woodwinds type feel to it, but it has a very much an off-to-adventure type of feel to it. And I assume you you sort of picked up on that as well. Yeah, and it kind of struck me um, just at the first in that it doesn't really kind of evoke the feeling of a forest for me. But as you say, it's kind of used in multiple capacities. And in that sense, like it's, again, the dun da 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 sort of quality to it. And yeah, I said, it's got a feeling of movement, of adventure, of marching, as you said, kind of does lend it to fit a lot of different locales as you're going on your journey. It kind of, I don't know if like in terms of actual melody, like reminded me of Viridian Forest, but just in that sense of like, we're on the road to Viridian City sort of feeling of like, it's less about the actual forest that we're in and more of like the stage of our journey where we're like traveling somewhere and we're excited and we're full of new found adventure. Yeah, if I were picking something closer to the Vrian forest theme, that probably would have been the song you just picked, School at Night. But um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you sort of mentioned all the different places. This song does have a lot of, I don't know if they, sections is quite the right word for it, but that's sort of the... Uh, I mean, they're not quite movements. Those would actually be bigger and longer, but it has all these different sort of pieces to it that sort of gave me the impression of going to different places and doing different things and accomplishing things and stuff like that before it, of course, loops all back around as most video game music does. Is that something that caught your attention, Anne? Yeah, I have a note about that actually for a different song, but this is one of the the songs that like really has a couple different stages of its uh, loop, which keeps it from getting too repetitive, which I think is very wise considering it gets used a lot. Yeah, it's definitely a track. I mean, the music obviously gets interrupted whenever you encounter a Pokemon and in various other cases, but the track itself, if you have to leave it on the pause screen or whatever, it's definitely one that does not uh, get overly annoying or boring or anything like that. Um, you can let it play for a while without uh, running into, at least at least for me, running into any, I guess you could say, problems or stuff like that. Mm. All right, well, let's go on to Anne's second pick, which is Jicole Village. Anne, uh, what made you uh, pick this one out? Well, this is just like a cute little song. It's a fun sort of little... Uh, marimba, synth, like almost a, a flute sound at times. It's very sweet and positive. A lot of instruments kind of in the treble register. But it also has like the occasional minor chord to just kind of like, let's not forget this is a side game and may may possibly break our heart. There's there's still conflict in this game. But it was just, just a, such a fun and cute and like wholesome track overall that it just kind of gave me some very warm feelings towards it. A very palette town sort of in a sense of like, this is a nice place. This is a safe place, I hope. Yeah, although I'd say the one word, the uh, descriptor I wrote down for this one was energetic. And it's more so than a lot of other, like if you're comparing it to stuff like Palette Town and some of the other starting towns in various games, this one has a bit more of a uh, a step to it or, or pep to it or whatever, and a little more energy than I think a lot of those do. Is uh, Maybe that's just because technically it's not where you start the game. That's more or less the ranger school. But it definitely has a, a fair bit of energy there that I think you know makes it feel actually a little less like a sleepy little town. It doesn't make it feel like a big city, but it isn't sort of the, the sleepy little town feel you get from where you start in a lot of the 
the main series Pokemon games, musically speaking. So mm-hmm. there's one little piece I wanted to point out in sort of the main section of this of this song. There's one part where it goes, I don't know if it's technically a key change, but it goes into do, 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 in sort of a different mm-hmm. register and stuff like that. I don't know if that's supposed to signal something. Um, I don't know if you, you want to uh, call that taking a risk or anything like that, but uh, any thoughts, Anne? I mean, I definitely noticed that. I've not played the whole game through yet, so I don't know if this comes back later. Like, it just, again, just kind of reminded me of potential. Like, this is a cute little town. We're on an adventure. Everything's great. But, like, it just kind of, like I said, just kind of every now and then with a melody or a chord change or something just kind of reminded you that maybe (laughs) it's not all okay. Like I said, I don't know if anything... Uh, overtly terrible happens in this town later in the game but like it again it being as you say not exactly the place you start that's an interesting observation that the music itself allows for the fact that you know this is a nice cute place and it's safe but at the same time we have left and we're starting the journey things could go wrong there is potential there so it's like that's what I noticed most about it was like just a little reminder Things sometimes go wrong on adventures. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I don't want to... Well, I'll just spoil a little bit. I don't <laughs> recall that anything too terrible happened specifically okay. in that town. The sort of uh, dramatic uh, action happens elsewhere in the world. Lullaby by Willow for I mean, Manda, probably didn't need those Jigglypuff samples to indicate what character prompted its inclusion, as the lyrics match quite well. The Puffball isn't the largest, strongest, or most intimidating Pokemon out there, but it does have another trick up its sleeve that it's more than willing to share, and the first verse summarizes that pretty accurately. As for the second verse, the primary Jigglypuff from the anime does appear many times throughout the series, making the term deja vu very appropriate. Even the chorus manages to provide a good parallel, as the repeated use of the song's title mimics how most Pokemon say their name when talking. Finally, the inclusion of the word capture in the bridge hints, unintentionally of course, that sleeping Pokemon are easier to catch. As for the musical aspects, while Latin influence might seem more appropriate for a singing and dancing mythical Pokemon that would come many years later, it is still fitting for our cherry pink balloon. In any event, what do you think of this adopted character song? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. But in any case, let's, let's go ahead and move on to my second pick. Let's see. This is Underwater. Now, I think, I don't remember if there were any, I don't think there were much, if any, underwater segments in the first game. This one does have them. There are parts where you literally go underwater. It's not just going on the water, like on Lapras, which I think the first game had. This one, you actually submerge yourself and you explore underwater, just like a lot like you would above, so much so that you actually you can't take Pokemon from one to the other. They're kind of separate environments. And uh, I think the, the music uh, kind of reflects that because, you know, there, we talk sometimes about, you know, music related to water, like beach music and stuff like that. This is a little bit different. This, I put down it has a bit of a buoyancy quality to it, which I guess is a little hard to describe musically. Like, it really did give the impression of being underwater as opposed to, like I said, on the beach um, or on the dock or something like that. And uh, did you have any thoughts in that area? Yeah, I really like the word you used, buoyancy. Like, I love that there's this little moment where it's kind of just like a 
at the end of phrases, it'll sometimes do a little, like, do-do-do-do-do. There's a lot of up-and-down quality to this music that just kind of, as you say, gives a sense of waves, of floating, and just kind of being moved along by the current. And, like, it's just a very sweet and smooth track that, as you say, like, perfectly captures the feeling of being underwater versus just around the water. And I also really love, like, this is another song that definitely has, like, a part one, a part two, a part three. Like, it's sweet and wonderful at the beginning, but, like, somewhere in the middle, it kind of almost like a, like, movements in a symphony or something moves into a bit of a minor key. Like, maybe something, something nefarious could happen in this water, so maybe there's danger. And then it goes into a third part that's, like, a little different still. Um, So another track that kind of serves multiple emotions multiple facets of the story yeah yeah it definitely has some uh, jazzy elements more so than you know a lot of the other stuff which he said is a very marching band this one definitely feels a bit more like a, a lounge or a club type song with like i said those underwater elements uh one point of comparison i wanted to make uh, even though stylistically um, they are very different, compositionally they are very different, but they serve a similar purpose. Uh, one of the all-time great underwater stage themes, Aquatic Ambience from Donkey Kong Country. Even though these compositionally are quite different and instrumentally are quite different, th- there's something, I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something similar about them. Like I said, you can kind of tell they fill the same niche. That was one thing that kind of kind of struck me there. And any any response to that part? Um, well, unfortunately, I'm not recalling uh, Donkey Kong, uh, the soundtrack, uh, so I'll have to take your word on for that, but I, I think I would say I agree, the parts I can speak to. Yeah, that might have come to mind also in part because I got to meet David Wise earlier this year, which was a, a big deal for me as, you know, one of the, the great uh, video game music composers out there. In any event, uh, the next track is also one of my picks. Like I said, we try to go roughly in gameplay order. Um, So Empoleon Ride is one that you get to hear when you get to sort of an uh, an ice-type area in the game. And basically, uh, there are Pokemon that you can effectively kind of ride on at various points in the game to traverse certain types of stuff. There's some where you can get on a river. There's some where you can get on lava. Um... And in this particular case, you get on an Empoleon, and in addition to letting you navigate freezing waters, it actually lets you, like, smash through small icebergs and stuff like that to get to your destination. But as as far as the music itself, uh, the instrumentation is very much in keeping with the rest of the game, but uh, the music itself has very much a gliding quality to it. And I think it also uses, I think... (sighs) you know, some bells and marimba. So it's definitely like percussion type or bell type instruments, which are not uncommon in, in that sort of march uh, stuff there, but it's used a bit differently. And what did you uh, sort of notice here? Yeah, I put down like, it's just got a sense of, of fun and wonder, but mostly movement. Like I can feel movement through this track. So it's like got that sense of energy that like you picture that you are in fact riding on a Pokemon. You're going through an environment. Um, and I kind of found that kind of be impressive. Yeah, the word movement is, is actually pretty appropriate because there are times where you have to actually build up momentum while you're on Empoleon so that you can slice through multiple little pieces of ice uh, through the currents to get to where you're getting to. So that's 
I mean, like I said, the the music follows the gameplay there, which is one of the things I really like about this one. Also, it's just kind of a a neat little. It's not a complete departure from the other music in that area, but it it plays nicely. I guess is the best way. I, I think. I kind of wish I had a few more words to describe this. But it's definitely a standout for me, uh, just the way it sort of integrates with the gameplay and the way it meshes with it. Anna, do you have anything else to say about this one? I think that's it for me. All right. Well, let's move on to Anne. Let's go to your third pick, which is The Incredible Machine. So I don't want to give out too much, but basically towards the end of the game, when you get to the sort of the final conflict there, the evil organization switches on this machine and it makes this noise. There's really sort of like a couple different phases to it. But Anne, you, you picked this one out. Uh, I, I, I can tell part of the reason it grabbed your attention has definitely got an identity to it. But uh, why don't you tell us uh, what you heard there, I guess. All right. Yeah. So this uh, track, um, to be fair, it's less of a song and more of sound effects. But what I found so striking about it is kind of the panning quality. So it's like almost a distortion-y, like a lot of rising, falling sounds that are less music and again, just more of a sound effect, but they pan from right to left in a way that's incredibly unsettling um, and very cool. I really found that striking. And I thought as far as uh, music for this for this game goes as steven says it has an it has its own identity like this is a is a track that perfectly fits the room it's in the the moment it's made for i've not gotten to that part yet in the game but like i can feel the tension and and again just that it has that very interesting panning effect i think makes it stand out a lot on this soundtrack yeah, yeah, I'd say it definitely works there. And and as you mentioned, it's sort of there's actually kind of like two phases of it as the machine gets turned up at a certain point. But as far as sort of like the non-musical aspects of it, that actually kind of reminds me of some of the stuff from like uh, especially like Earthbound Mother 2 and you remember earlier we said that one of the folks on this game had worked on sort of the sort of the discarded N64 version of Mother 3, which I guess would have been Earthbound 2 had it come out here. So I did kind of want to point out that similarity. Um, it's about as close as, as Pokemon musically, or at least this game gets to sort of some of the more oddball stuff in the Mother slash Earthbound series, but there is that little connection there, and I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm always surprised that every now and then, like, whether it's we're talking about Pokemon music and the video games or the anime or like the Earthbound Mother series just kind of just keeps creeping in there, just reminding everybody that there's a connection, that people, some people worked on both these projects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, there's definitely other stuff we could have talked about. There's a fair number of other locations we didn't get to. Um, please do feel free to mention any of the ones that are your favorites. Um in any case, let's sort of give our overall sort of opinion on the music in this game. Um, as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it it sort of expands on the first Ranger game. It's very much in line with that. I do think overall this is probably a better soundtrack than the first one. The first one wasn't horrible or anything. It was perhaps one of the best things about that game. <laughs> but... 
Um, this one seems like a, a good successor. It's probably not on the level, at least for me, as something like a, a mystery dungeon from this era, but it does, I think, work very well and does some things very well. And what was sort of your overall uh, opinion or take on this game's music? I would agree with that. Like, it feels... It it feels very like Pokemon. Like there's a, a style of composing to it that feels very much in the vein of the main series games, even a little bit. And it just like that call to adventure, but it's got a lot of uniqueness to it as well, which I really appreciate. And I, I think I would agree that I'm mildly more positive about this one than the previous Rangers game. That there's like a lot of I don't know, just a lot of new things and a lot of expansion on musical ideas and locations and the like in a, in a musical sense to keep it interesting. All right. Well, if you had any thoughts on the music of this game you wanted us to sort of talk about, you can always drop us a line, pokepress at gmail.com. You can always leave a comment on one of these videos, or you can look us up on Twitter at pokepress. And speaking of feedback, this is a comment I got recently on one of my older videos, is actually from about a decade ago, Blu-ray Review Pokemon Collection. So like I said, this is from about 2012 or so. Basically, this was a Blu-ray set. It was one disc, but it had four movies on it. Uh, the four Miramax movies, so that's, let's see, Pokemon Forever, Heroes, Jirachi, and Deoxys are all on there. This is a sort of a follow-up to a 5.7 Blu-ray they released a year or two earlier. But in any case, uh, we, we get comments on this every so often because these movies are always in kind of a weird state of limbo. But from uh, Kuka's Nerdy Corner, hopefully I said that about right, uh, said he just recently bought this set for $70. US uh, Yeah, this has been out of print for quite some time and goes for a decent price on the used market. And he sort of it says it's a shame Miramax hasn't released any of these movies again on Blu-ray. Um, and he's surprised they still hold the rights. So I sort of semi-corrected that. I mean, Miramax, it, I don't know exactly how it all got split up at some point, but as far as the Pokemon movies, I, I, it seems like Paramount has inherited the rights through some sort of buyout or whatever. And in fact, they do have them digitally, at least some of them, on different services. Like, I know Deoxys is on, uh, you can buy it on Amazon. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, I don't have Paramount Plus, so I can't tell you. If uh, any of them are on there, I wouldn't be surprised if they are or were or will be at some point. But uh, let's see, this 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 individual got back to me and said, uh, yeah, he, he seems to pick up a lot of the German ones, uh, the Blu-rays, which also happen to have the English dub, it seems. And uh, he kind of asked uh, why they didn't have that. Um, and uh, they told them, yeah, someone else has the rights to those four. So those, like I said, they're in a bit of an odd state, at least for now. I think, for some reason, unlike uh, some of the other ones, Pokemon, I think their goal kind of is to buy back the distribution rights so that they can unify them for all the animated films on their end, more or less. And these ones, they haven't really gotten around to that. We, we, like I said, we get comments on these because some of the, you know some I know Destiny Deoxys and uh, some of the other ones are definitely up there and a lot of folks list of their favorite movies and it's very frustrating to them to uh, not have a good way to pick up a copy of these other than waiting for you know the DVD set that occasionally seems to get re-released or or something of that nature. They'd like these to be a little easier to get a hold of. I don't know, and. That was a whole mouthful. Uh, what, what do, you, do you have some things to add? 
I mean, I don't know if I have much to add. Mostly just like the more I learn about music distribution, the more I become aware of things like sound recordings, which, you know, just don't just apply to music, which, which can also apply to just the spoken word in movies. And like, it's just amazing how complicated these situations can be of movies exchanging rights and getting dubbed and getting released in certain places but not others it's like i'm always just amazed at something that in my brain feels like it should be so simple becomes so complicated but um good on you for get managing to get your hands on the set <laughs> like i applaud you i hope someday they are able to get um a little bit more easily available in um uh, many many different countries and in many different languages yeah, like I said, at least the English versions, some of them I think you can buy through YouTube and other other platforms. It is it does seem to be somewhat of a weird uh, arrangement, and I'm not sure why it's so so complicated at the moment if they're just testing the waters. I guess something to keep your eyes on and see if, how that uh, changes over time. Yeah, I know like in the past I've sometimes like sold parts of my, you know, collection of DVDs over the years because, you know, we don't need as many for, you know, within a streaming world and and I need cash and things like that. But it's like those four, it's like I'm never letting them go because I may never get them back. Yeah, yeah. I kind of know how you feel about that. So as someone who owns both of the uh, the 5.7 and the 4.5.6.7 Miramax Blu-ray compilations, uh, as well as I believe, I, I'm pretty sure I have all four of them on DVD around here somewhere uh, because... You know the shorts aren't included on these Blu-rays either for like the first three that have them. So that's that's another whole dimension to this. Um, <laughs> and it's, like I said, just as a reminder, if you have any thoughts on on this discussion or or any of our discussions, go ahead and feel free to give us a comment. Pokepress at gmail dot com at Pokepress on Twitter or a comment on one of our videos, just like this individual did uh, a few weeks ago. So our next discussion is Pokemon Rumble. This is uh, kind of like My Pokemon Ranch. It's uh, another WiiWare title. Um, although this one is, is much more uh, gamey. It does use some of the same, uh, pretty much the same Pokemon models as My Pokemon Ranch did. But this one is very much a sort of arena combat type of deal uh, gameplay-wise. And, uh, it's, you know, Umbrella, they obviously kind of ceased to exist a few years ago. But this... But the subseries Rumble would be their output for the rest of their existence. So this is kind of what they're more or less known for. Um, I don't know. Anne, did you did you play this game when it originally came out? Or, um, like it looks mildly familiar. I think it's one of those that I may have watched somebody play at a convention. I again, we're kind of in the era where I don't own a lot of these games, <laughs> so, um, but it de it de definitely like. It looks a little bit familiar, so I feel like I may have watched somebody play. I may have to do some research on it or try to see if I can find a copy or of my own before the next episode recording. Well, like I said, it's a WiiWare title, so if you can't find it downloaded, you won't be able to find this one too easily. Although some gotcha. of the other iterations, at least one of them was released on cartridge somewhere. I think one of the 3DS versions was released on cartridge somewhere, so... Um, the games have some differences and some new content and some tweaks each time, uh, but the core gameplay is, is still pretty similar with each one. But yeah, that's going to be our next discussion. But uh, until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Okay, well, we obviously had plenty to talk about with the music of Shadows of All Man, but we definitely want to talk about the game itself. They made a number of mechanical changes from the first one. Uh, the first one, like I said, that we talked about it last year, and we were pretty harsh on it mechanically. Uh, sort of the main difference between the two games is in the first game, in order to catch a Pokemon, you have to make consecutive circles around it a certain number without lifting up your stylus. Um, you And that's the only way to catch it. Um, in this one, they use sort of an HP-based system, where as you circle it, you... You it wouldn't call it damage isn't quite the right word, but you sort of build up a bar, and when it fills up, you catch the Pokemon. Now, if you stop making circles, it will start to go down again, and you'll lose some of your progress. So that's sort of the balancing act they have there. Now, Anne, you didn't play this back then, but you did pick this up just recently for this sort of uh, retrospective. Mm-hmm. I assume you noticed that quite quickly. Yeah, like I... I, so I don't believe I ever owned Ranger, but, like, I believe the little dabbles of the first game that I played, like, I remember being kind of frustrated because I am not a gamer. And that, like, having to, like, draw a perfect circle without ever picking up your style is like, that. But this time around, like, it just was so much easier and so much more forgiving. And I would not say I'm still, like, any good at this game, but it is much more user-friendly to be able to try to catch the Pokemon and not necessarily have to draw a perfect circle that you know never never lifts up never changes its pressure yeah well it doesn't have to be a perfectly round circle or anything like that but uh (laughs) it's not that picky in the first game um but i i would say actually although you can argue that it becomes easier in the second game which i think was kind of the point um too easy for some folks i did see one or two reviews that were kind of I don't know if dismissive is quite the word, but surprised it was changed in that way since they seem to have gotten along with the first game quite well. But I really think actually changing the mechanics the way they did opens up a lot of things. You can do more stuff there. You know, like you can use uh, assists from the various Pokemon much more easily and in much more interesting ways. And it sort of it gives the things more of a structure and more of a feel to them. You know, we did have boss battles in the first game, but because, you know, it was always the do this many circles, you didn't have like an ebb and flow to them. It's just you either got the circles or you didn't and you had to kind of start over. Yes, they may have had moves they switched between, but it was sort of just, I don't know, the dynamics were just so very different. And I think changing the capture mechanics... Like I said, not only did it make the game more accessible and arguably easier, but I think it made it a mechanically uh, more deep game. And do you think that's a fair assessment? I do. Like, I definitely feel like I'm involved. Like, again, it's hard to remember back to the bits I played of the first game, but like in reviewing the Let's Plays of the first game that I watched to prepare for it, like, like I definitely feel like this is a game that I'm actually playing and making decisions about and being involved in rather than like trying to focus so hard on this one mechanical aspect of it. So I think you're right. I think it, it, as you say, just kind of opened up some of the gameplay. 
Yeah. As far as some of the other mechanics, like, did you enjoy being able to ride on Pokemon? There's more of that in the third game. It, they really take it uh, to the next level there. But in this one, you can sort of catch certain Pokemon, use them to go on rivers or lava or stuff like that. Did that uh, feel like a nice addition? I did. I I, I like uh, the opportunity to be able to use the Pokemon to kind of interact with the environment. I, I enjoy that aspect of the main series games, too. So, yeah, no, I felt that that was a good touch. All right. Well, talking about the game structure a little bit. Now, the game does actually start you out at a ranger school, which you might have thought would have been in the first ranger game. But there they just kind of, well, you've been drafted or whatever, or you sent a letter and you got accepted or whatever. This one seems to have a bit more of an actual, like, uh, learning architecture. And it's always a little, you know, when they have a school at the beginning of a game, that can seem a little bit, I don't know if pandering is the right word. I don't know. I, I just have a lot of thoughts about that. Like, were they sort of doing a soft reboot of the series that way or things of that nature? I don't know. Anne, what are your kind of thoughts? It's hard to say what they were thinking, but I definitely think it's a good choice. I like the idea of starting out in the school and kind of getting all your tutorials in kind of that way. And I just love that kind of first opening joke where it's like you show up at the school and they're like, haha, we're team school, we're the bad guys. And you find out later they're just kind of having a joke at your expense. But like, I don't know, there was just something very cute about it, kind of just interacting with all the students and kind of going through like, this is a stylus, this is what is it does, this is how you capture a Pokemon, this is your teacher, are you a boy or a girl, is he a boy or a girl, like all those other things. Like it just, being set in a school environment, in some ways felt, as you say, a little pandering, a little cheesy and cliche, but in other ways, like it fit, like that was just the natural place to have your tutorial, your starting point. So I liked it. I thought it was a good choice. Yeah, it's just because it's the second game in the sub-series, it's sort of a, a <laughs> weird thing there that it could come across as, especially if they hadn't changed so many mechanics, it could come off as insulting to some of the people who had played the first game. But they they do weave a little bit of story stuff in there to keep it from being completely tutorial um, mm -hmm. and nothing else. So speaking of some other structural elements, one thing they added here is uh, a quest system. And, you know, the way this works is basically on the overworld, you'll see someone who has a, a little cartoon speech or thought bubble above their head, and you can talk to them, and they'll give you some tasks to do. Um, and when you complete that task, first of all, there's a little bit of a mini story that plays out, and also you get some sort of bonus for it. Um, in your current playthrough you've been going through, and have you been doing a lot of those? Have you been saving them for later? Or how's, how's that worked out for you? I've been doing some of them. And, like, it, like it's a, a mechanic that, like, appears in a lot of other games that I've played. And I'm kind of the type that I want to do every side quest. So I imagine I will do every single one of them eventually. But, yeah, I've done a few. I've kind of gone to the beach and investigated a cave and a lot of just little different little side quests. I'm not sure how many of them are side quests and how many of them I have to finish to get to the end. But yeah, like I've enjoyed that. And I, I think the making some of them maybe a little bit optional or like you can choose when you want to get around to it. I've always liked that mechanic in games that you're not always kind of railroaded from one thing to the other. You can kind of make a, your own choices about in what order you do things or if you do some things at all. So I like that aspect of it. 
Yeah, I think technically speaking, all the quests are optional. But you do you learn some things about some of the characters, uh, including some of the not not the main characters, but some of the important characters in the game and stuff like that. The, if you do those quests and stuff, and definitely if it's your first time through, you maybe don't need to do every single one of them. But I recommend picking out at least a couple because you do get some good bonuses there, like defense against certain types, extra features for your stylus. And and other stuff like that. So there are some definite bonuses you can get that way. All right. Well, a lot like uh, a ma- not only a main series Pokemon game, but also the the first uh, Ranger game. This t- this game has an evil team, which is Team Dim Sun. And I'm almost a little surprised you did not pick out one of their uh, battle themes for one of your songs there. But I was wondering, did you have any any thoughts on uh, the the team as a whole or the organization or some of its leaders or stuff? I mean, like, it's, they do have some good musical themes. I kept reading it as Team Dim Sun, which, like, I kept trying to figure out, like, oh, is that, are all, all of their names related to food or something? No, um, they're not. They're a lot more sinister, it turns out. But yeah, like I just find them an interesting team. I find um I find Heath kind of interesting. I really like um what's the name of the de facto leader of that team? I know there's um, Weezer, but I don't know. I the, think that's the how it's... snarky guy in the group. Yeah, I don't. That's not that's not who who that is. But the, uh, spoiler alert! I think you've probably figured this out yourself. But some of the folks in the all true uh, company are kind of in cahoots with Team Dim Sun. So, <laughs> mm. not the biggest surprise. I won't try and spoil the rest of it because there is some interesting character stuff that you probably haven't gotten to yet. But then maybe I'll stop talking before I spoil myself. <laughs> but. <laughs> But I no, I do rather find uh, this team interesting. I'm not sure I fully understand their goal yet, because like I said, I'm kind of in the middle of spoiling myself while also trying to play through. So yeah, I'll try not to reveal too much about the uh, ending of the game. I I figured you had probably fi- you would probably figure it out on your own. There was some sort of connection between that 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 big uh, business conglomerate oil company. And uh, the evil team, it just makes too much sense. But I won't go much further than that. (laughs) Right. But uh, you mentioned Heath. So I don't want to make too much fun of this character or anything like that. But basically, about three quarters of the way through the game or whatever, you start getting uh, voicemail messages from this person who uh, seems to be impersonating another ranger. And is speaking in some very, I, I mean, there's not really a great way to say it, broken English, at least in the English version. And, uh, and good on you. Um, I did ask you to do some research about this character and how they're presented in other versions of the game and stuff like that. Uh, do you want to go ahead and elaborate? Yeah, so the conceit of the character Heath is that he is not from Almia. He is from somewhere else, very much like uh, Fantina in the anime. They are from some other nation within the Pokemon world that does not speak the same language that necessarily Ash and company all speak, that different even from maybe some of the local dialects of Alola and Unova. So he speaks in broken English in the English dub and in many of the other 
dubs as well. They speak kind of just a broken version of their language to kind of imply that this person is, you know, speaking a second language. They are from originally somewhere else. In the Japanese uh, version, he actually has a Tohoku-esque dialect, which is um, a region of Japan. It's... um. Y'all remember in 2011, I believe it was when the big earthquake and and nuclear disaster happened in Japan. That's the area this is from. And it's kind of like the stereotypical, like, rural country bumpkin kind of dialect is the best um, U.S. comparison I can draw. Like, it's just you hear it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's rural. And um, the northeast part of Tohoku kind of... The dialect can be so different from the mainstream, you know, proper Tokyo dialect that they, like, sometimes air broadcasts from Tohoku with subtitles. It's very much like the Okinawan dialect in that way. It's just, like, it's kind of just managed to diverge enough that mainstream people may not fully understand what was saying. And it's still Japanese, but, like, they've gone through a lot of trouble to kind of give him uh, a dialect and an accent that Japanese people would recognize, like, ah, he is from somewhere else than all these other characters. Okay, I kind of wonder what they did in that version if they had, like, in the Japanese version, they made him sound like he had a like a, an American accent trying to pronounce mm. Japanese, but that's not apparently what they did. I'm trying to think what the, like, the U.S. equivalent is, and it might not have worked out very well might have made the thing look bad, so I can kind of see why they may have gone in a different direction with the translated versions. Although it's not uncommon for like other languages, like I assume you looked at like the French version and a few mm, others, yeah. and it's it's not uncommon for those to be based on the English version like that. So it, it's quite possible, but um, yeah, yeah. So I, certainly, if you did that the wrong way, you could get in, uh, I guess, some trouble for it. Um, not sure how Japan would or that region of Japan would sort of perceive this type of thing in their version. But yeah, I just kind of want to point that out. All right, well, I guess sort of, you know, going through this game and and stuff like that and having revisited the first Ranger game, I kind of wanted to ask, uh, from like a quality perspective, do you feel like this is what the first Ranger game mechanically and stuff should have been? I mean, that's sort of the, the conclusion I came to, so much so that, like, I, I didn't realize some of the more common themes, like the battle theme and some of the other stuff, were all new, because this is, well, maybe I didn't say that super well or stuff like that super clearly. But do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like, this is, like, maybe the first game was a bit of a rush job and a bit of a um, needed more time in the oven or stuff like that. I, I don't know. Anne, what do you think? Yeah, I don't want to knock the first one too hard, because... Um... There are many people who enjoyed it, and as, as you say, you found a few couple comments of people who apparently were very successful with the original game com- mechanics. But for my part, like this feels like a second draft, and if I were to introduce somebody to this series, I think I would give them this game first. And it, like, not like I said, I don't necessarily want to wipe the first game off the planet because there was a lot of gr- there was a lot of good there. I don't want to erase it and say like you know, don't play it at all or just skip over it. But I do feel like for me, as evidenced just by the fact that I am still playing this one that I picked up for this podcast, and I, you know, played a little bit of the first Rangers of Ultimon and then just ultimately never played it again and have never picked it up since. This is the one I think is a better introduction for most people to the series, I think. 
Yeah, I think it's there's kind of a similar thing with some of the Pokemon movies because I think some folks say that at least I've sometimes thought that maybe I I want people to start actually with like the second Pokemon movie, Pokemon Two Thousand. They're not terribly familiar with it because the first one, like, there are some legitimately great things about Mewtwo Strikes Back, but there are also some serious rough edges, and the second movie has a lot less of those. I think we might be in kind of a similar situation here, although I think pretty much, like, everything about this second game is is more or less better. I mean, it's, it's not a, a perfect comparison or anything like that, but I feel like there are some definite similarities. That's a really interesting comparison to make, and I, I kind of like that. But again, there's a lot of good things in the first game, but some serious rough edges. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's a little bit of a different thing in a video game where those rough edges you encounter directly through gameplay versus just having to watch a movie or listen to uh, music or something like that. So maybe that, that gives it a different quality there, but I did want to kind of point that out. Like one example I have that kind of came out of that um, the tsunami uh, disaster is that like they had some slogans in Tohoku for the rebuilding that uh, said Ganbate with a P rather than like Ganbare or Gambate or whatever. Like that's the best, like the best examples I can find. It's like they'll often end end their grammatical function with dao dape. I think Heath actually refers to himself as ora rather than ore. Like, little things like that, that, like, again... All right, well, I did have one more thing on there, but since you haven't finished the game, I was going to p- compare All True Inc. to a certain real-world oil company that got into a lot of trouble about a year after this game came out. But I guess we'll have to leave that for uh, some other time when you've come through there. But, um... Let's see. I mean, if you really want to spill the tea, like... <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll let you discover that on your own. But, okay, um, okay. Yeah, so there's some interesting stuff that maybe we'll do in a future discussion.